wanted to thank our worship leaders as we get started for Tell Out My Soul. It's, um, I think that's my favorite hymn. Um, and uh, uh, it's actually uh, it's the hymn I had when I was uh, installed like a washing machine at the cathedral. And <laughs> I love that term, installed. It always made me feel like a dryer or a dishwasher. Um, but uh, it's also uh, one of my hymns for my funeral. So, um, so thank you. Uh, and I think the, um, the words of that hymn are, um, they're kind of, uh, they're, they're sort of the goal of my life, tell out my soul, the greatness of the Lord, and that fourth verse, tell out my soul, the glories of his word. Um, and uh, I think that that's uh, particular, my particular blessing in, blessing in getting to teach scripture. And was it Glenn that was talking about the legacy? Glenn? Yeah, thank you, Glenn. Um, just, just as a, a little aside before I, I launch into the teaching today. Um, so I've been in Montana for five years now, and one of the things that has really surprised me being up there Montana is really kind of on the sort of the front edge of, I think, the um, losing Christianity in, uh, in, in our nation. And um, one of the things that has shocked me is when I meet um, people in like their 20s and 30s who don't know the Noah's Ark story. Um, who don't, uh, who really only know the name of Jesus as a curse word. Um, and so, Glenn, I thank you for that prayer, um, because uh, how many of you are parents in here? And grandparents? I, I, cannot, I cannot tell you how important it is for, um, for you to be raising your children with a lively faith. Um, for your faith to be so present and obviously life-giving in your own lives that your children um, experience that and know that. Because if, if you're not doing that, your children or your grandchildren will one day not know the Noah's Ark story. They will not know the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I think that that's, um, it's sad and it's scary, and we never think it can happen until it does. Um, so I would really encourage all of you, uh, parents, grandparents, godparents, um, to, really, uh, to really make helping your children know the Lord a priority in your lives. So party political broadcast over. Um, <laughs> the Lord be with you. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, good morning from Montana. I took this of our Montana sunrise on Monday, um, so this was from my lane, um, going to my house, so a beautiful sunrise, I thought, for our morning. Um, so today we are in um, John chapter 10, and the Feast of Hanukkah, and I wanted to thank Deborah for lending me a Bible that doesn't have pictures of giraffes in it, so <laughs> not that I have anything against giraffes. Um, so, um, all right, so John chapter 10, um, in chapter 7, 8, and kind of uh, a little bit into 9, we had the Feast of Tabernacles. The next feast in uh, the Jewish calendar in Jesus' day is this Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah. Um, but John chapter 10, uh, we get to the actual Feast of Hanukkah kind of in the middle of this chapter, um, but uh, the, the first part of this chapter is, of course, the really famous part of John's teaching about the Good Shepherd. Um, I am the Good Shepherd. I am the gate for the sheep. Um, truly, truly, which is, by the way, whenever you see truly, truly, it's Jesus' way of saying, hey, listen up, this is really important. Um, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. 
Um, and so we see Jesus here um, identifying himself as the good shepherd, as the gate for the sheep. Um, and this, uh, this image of the good shepherd is, of course, really, really important. Now, I think uh, oftentimes for us as Christians, we are familiar with this, um, vision, this sort of idea of Jesus as the good shepherd, and we'll often see paintings of Jesus, like with a, a sheep across his shoulders. Um, but, uh, and of course, we all love the 23rd Psalm. But when Jesus here in chapter 10 starts talking about being the good shepherd, he's really making an important statement. And this again takes us back to the Old Testament because what he's telling us is very much rooted in the language of the Old Testament and in God's image of sheep and shepherds. So when we look through the Old Testament, one of the oft-used images of the people of Israel is that they are like sheep. Um, And I I don't have time to talk all about that, but just roll with me. Sheep are both stubborn and kind of stupid, and they get lost really easily, and they don't do well on their own. They really need a shepherd, otherwise they're going to die. Um, and so that's part of this imagery. When, when Jesus talks about being the good shepherd, it's because we people, we really need a good shepherd. Otherwise, we're going to get lost and we're going to die all on our own some with nobody to help us. So that's one of the big images of Israel. But the shepherd imagery is used two ways in the Old Testament. First of all, Um, It is the imagery that God uses to describe the religious and political leaders of Israel. And what we see through the Old Testament, though, is that they don't do a very good job. And I'm going to give you a couple of references here. I think it may be in your handouts. but um, So back in Ezekiel, one of my favorite books. So um, in Ezekiel chapter um, 34... We have an extended teaching about the shepherds of Israel. And in in chapter 34, God is actually excoriating the Israelite leadership for having failed to be good shepherds. And it's a really powerful chapter um, because uh, in this chapter we see God really using images like, you know, basically you're, you're eating the sheep that you should be taking care of. Or you're not taking care of them and the fat, healthy sheep are literally running over the poor, weak sheep. And so they can't get to water. And God says uh, in Ezekiel 34, because you shepherds have been such bad and destructive and selfish shepherds, I am coming against you and I am going to destroy you. And then God says, and I myself am going to come, and I am going to be the shepherd for my sheep, and I am a good shepherd. And so in John chapter 10, when Jesus talks about being the good shepherd, he is referencing back to Ezekiel 34. So think again about that first question that we talked about last night. What does this chapter tell us about Jesus? It tells us that Jesus is... God. He's the good shepherd who's come, which means he's telling us, I'm God, and I have come to shepherd my people. A couple of other references with sheep, you'll see this in Jeremiah 23, Zechariah chapter 11, and Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Those are some other good references um, on this. And so Jesus begins this chapter right around the time of Hanukkah, Uh, the Feast of Dedication, talking about being the Good Shepherd. And this is really important because this whole theme of who the rightful leader of the children of Israel is, is all about what this Feast of of Dedication is. So, um, So I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the Jewish Feast of Hanukkah. It kind of falls around our Christmas time. Um, But I want to do a little bit of the background history, uh, because I'm kind of a history nut, um, and I get to teach, so you're going to have to listen to it. Um, 
So a little bit of the, the history behind the Feast of Hanukkah. And Kathy, you were asking earlier about my class that I'd done on the intertestamental period, and this very much ties in with this. So, um, so um, the, uh, the Feast of Hanukkah was not one of the Levitical, it was not one of the feasts that God uh, gave to the children of Israel in Leviticus. We actually don't see the Feast of Hanukkah showing up until this intertestamental period. So it's a later feast, but it's also a feast that reflects the Exodus, like we talked about last night, and we'll talking, be, be talking about again this afternoon. Um, but it's, uh, it's one of the huge feasts in the life of Israel. And it came about in this intertestamental period. And um, uh, so um, your history lesson here. So um, in, um, in, in three, uh, 332 BC, Alexander the Great of Macedonia, Greece, um, began his move uh, eastward. And in 323, he conquered the area that we know as Israel. Um, and then he went on, and all this bit in the red, which goes into India and all throughout the Middle East, he conquered all of that. Well, he died about 10 years later. Um, it probably was murdered, actually, just as a random piece of information. Um, and his empire, he was unmarried without children. So his empire was divided up among his top generals. And um, one, of, one of them was the, the general called uh, Ptolemy. And he got the area of Egypt, and he was given also the area of modern-day Israel. Now, the most famous of the Ptolemies, actually, is Cleopatra. So she, she was uh, the last of the Ptolemies, actually, from, from this, this time period. Um, and she uh, gets, gets whacked um, in, in the first century B.C., um, but um, the, another one of his generals, a guy by the name of Seleucus, was given the area north, um, north of, um, of Israel-Palestine. And uh, the Ptolemies and the, Seleuc the Seleucids, though, were fighting over the area of Israel because Israel was uh, a key um, route, a land and seaport entry, into the rest of kind of the world to the east. Um, in fact, in Israel, they had what was known as the King's Highway, because if you are going from Egypt, which is, of course, a major area of power, into Babylonia or Persia or any of that, the way that you came was up through Israel. And so that became known as the King's Highway. So Israel is interesting, and this actually ties in with the Gospel, um, because it was crucial in the ancient world at this time. If you wanted to go anywhere, kind of from Africa up into Europe or Africa into the Middle East, it usually meant that you went through Israel. Now this is fascinating for us with regards to the spread of the Gospel too. And this is part of this Kairos time as well. Uh, that um, the Roman Empire, of course, which we'll talk about in a second, but the Roman Empire built all the roads. Are any of you familiar of the Monty Python Life of Brian? What have the Romans ever done for us? Um, given us roads and plumbing, and <laughs> but other than that, what have they ever done for us? Well, the fact that they gave us roads is really important, and this is God's Kairos time, because Jesus was born at the time of the Roman Empire, when they had built roads and made travel safe. And Israel, in many ways, was kind of the heart of the ancient world, because that's where all roads went through. And so Jesus being born there at that time, um, God was already setting up for Paul's journeys, for the other apostles, and for the spread of the gospel around the world. So this area of Israel was hugely, hugely important um, to, to trade and to just getting anywhere. And so the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids um, further north started fighting over Israel because both of them wanted to own that, get the taxes from transportation and from goods traveling in that area, and also to shore up their borders against each other. Well, what happens in 
uh, is that um, in, um, one, uh, in 198, the Seleucids gained control over Israel. And this was really bad. The Ptolemies, as bad as they may have been, were actually pretty laissez-faire. The Seleucids were not. They were very aggressive, um, and they were very harsh oppressors. And a big part of what they wanted to do was they wanted to make the uh, Jews be Greek. So they began a systematic um, program of essentially Greekifying the Jews. And this really took, uh, it really took off in 175 when one of the Seleucids, a guy by the name of Antiochus IV, became the king of the Seleucid Empire. Antiochus was nuts. He took the title for himself, Epiphanes, which means God made manifest. He thought he was a living God. Now, we see a little bit of that happening in that world at that time in general. Um, but generally, when these guys would say, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a living God because I'm the king, they kind of knew they weren't gods. The problem with Antiochus is he really thought he was. He was all about himself. Um, and he decided that he really wanted to show the Jews who was God because it wasn't Yahweh. And so he put a statue of himself in the temple, which violates the commandment of no idols, right? It violates the Shema, you know, the, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It was abhorrent to the Jews. Um, he, uh, he did another, a, a number of other things, literally trying to stamp out Judaism. He was the first, or excuse me, the second century B.C. version of Pharaoh. So you had Pharaoh back in the day with genocide. Now you have Antiochus IV also trying to wipe out the Jews. And um, you can read a lot about what Antiochus did in, in the Apocrypha. So these are books that are not canonical in your Gospel. You won't find them in your Old Testament. But some Bibles will have the Apocrypha in the middle and um, there are four books in the Apocrypha called Maccabees, so one through four Maccabees. And in the, book of, in the books of Maccabees, you can read all about what uh, Antiochus did, including at one point there's this amazing story of this widow who had seven sons, and Antiochus tortured and killed all seven of her sons and then killed her because they would not deny Yahweh as God, because they would not worship the statue of Antiochus IV that was in the temple. And so we see this, uh, what happens basically is this rebellion. And it really takes off after Antiochus does something that would have been absolutely abhorrent to Jews. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. Now, a lot of scholars think that this is the genesis of the concept of the, uh, abomination, the, the abominating desolation. Um, and, um, and so th this horrible thing that Antiochus did. And so at this point, what happens is a rebellion breaks out. And it's led um, by an old, uh, an old priest in a town outside of Jerusalem called Modin. And uh, his, he had a bunch of sons, and one of them was a kid by the name of Judas, not like the bad Judas who betrayed Christ, another Judas, but he was apparently a strapping lad, and he started a rebellion, and he was so successful um, in uh, basically battling the Seleucid army that he was given the nickname Judas Maccabeus, which means Judas the Hammer. Um, and so Judas and his brothers basically fought a battle and uh, a war. They started a kind of insurgent warfare, one of the first insurgent warfares, um, and they managed to drive the Seleucid Empire out. And uh, they cleansed the temple, and um, uh, they uh, restored proper Jewish alt uh, proper Jewish. Um, worship in the temple, and that was in 164 B.C. on the 25th of Kislev, 
which is, remember, the Jews are on a, um, a lunar calendar. So it's approximately December. So this is the genesis of Hanukkah. It is the rededication of the temple, but that also celebrates another victory over an oppressor who is trying to kill anyone who is faithful out and who's trying to destroy the worship of the one true God. So this was very much seen as a second exodus, in a sense. It didn't have quite the same weight, but you can see where there would be so many connections. And so this is what Hanukkah celebrates. And the lighting of the menorah, though, there's an interesting later rabbinic understanding of the lighting of... um, Actually, technically, it's not a menorah, but we won't get into that. But the lighting of the candelabra... um, was, is a, it was a little later rabbinic uh, sort of story that went with it that basically said um, the, the oil that was to burn in the big menorah in the, uh, in the temple had to have a particularly made oil. It had to be um, pure, like kosher olive oil. And they didn't have enough. They only had enough for one day. And it would take them seven days to make the new olive oil to burn. And the the story goes that God made that oil that was only sufficient for one day last all eight days. And that's sort of the part of the the, um, understanding of the menorah. But um, Hanukkah really, um, a big part of Hanukkah is that God basically rescued his people. He raised up Judas and his brothers to overthrow the suppressor so that they could worship as God intended them to. And so, uh, again, you can see these themes with Exodus running through, um, but this is also now where chapter 10 folds in, because from chapters 5 through 10 of John's Gospel, we get what we theologians call an inclusio. So 5 through 10 bookend this long section of argument with the Pharisees about who is Jesus and by whose authority are you doing these things. And so in chapter 10, it kind of comes to a head. And Jesus is telling them exactly who he is and exactly by whose authority he is doing all of these things. And it connects in with Hanukkah because what was the problem? The problem with, with the whole Seleucid and Antiochus IV was who has the right to rule God's people and who is the true God. And one of the really interesting things in Maccabees that we see is that, at the, um, is that in Maccabees, uh, the author basically says the one true God is known by his works. And Antiochus could not defeat the one true God. The one true God took this tiny nation and defeated a huge empire. So who is the one true God? The one who won. Who you can look at his works and say, what he has done is mighty and powerful. And it beats what Antiochus IV did. Therefore, who is the God, Antiochus IV or Yahweh? Yahweh. And this is what's going on in chapter 10. So as we get into, what, how long do I have, Deborah? 1045. Okay, thank you. Um, all right, so um, I've, like I say, I've got three days worth of information. So, um, and so, um, so this, is, this is really a huge, this is what, what's going on. And Jesus is going to say, Look at my works, and then you tell me to the Pharisees. But let's look at it a little bit. I got a little more time today. So, um, so as we as we move into chapter ten, so verse twenty-two is where the Hanukkah piece starts specifically, um, and uh, it's also called the Feast of Dedication once it's translated. Um, and it took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. Can anybody think of a little verse that that sounds like? In John chapter 3, Nicodemus goes to Jesus, right? And you remember what it says? 
and it was night, right? So just that, just that one, little, one little verse there is not just telling us that Jesus was wearing a parka <laughs> um, or he put socks on with his sandals, which is always a fashion error, right? So, um, but what, he's, what is he telling us there? And it was winter. It's dark. It's cold. Um, and, um, and, and, I, and, and also, one of the big images that we see in the Old Testament about God's coming is what? Springtime. When's the resurrection? Springtime. Right. So, so it was winter is actually a, a little bit of a theological statement. And it's one that, uh, it's one that C.S. Lewis picked up on in the, the Chronicles of Narnia, right? So the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, how do we know that the evil queen's in charge? It's winter, right. It's like this never-ending winter until Aslan shows up, and then where he steps, spring starts coming. So this is what it's telling us, that, it's, you know, that, that there, things aren't right, things aren't right, and that the, the religious leadership, their hearts are frozen, um, and uh, so I think it's just a, a really great little little tidbit there. And Jesus was walking in the temple. Uh, just as an aside, so from chapter 7 all the way now through to the end of the gospel, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Now the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic by is a Greek word that means to see alike. So the synoptic gospels have a lot of overlap. John is a very different gospel. The, uh, the, his, the church historian writing in the early 300s said of John's gospel that once the history had been written down, just the facts, ma'am, John wrote his gospel, and it's a spiritual gospel. And this is why John's gospel is, uh, is different than those other three. And, and because John now is like, you've got the other gospels that kind of give you the chronology, and then Jesus did this, and then Jesus did that, and then he did this. John's gospel is a little different because what he is doing is he's focusing on these very um, big spiritual lessons. And Eusebius said it's because John didn't need to write another chronology. John is now focusing on Kairos time and on teaching us bigger spiritual lessons. So um, that's why some of the difference is there. Um, but um, the synoptic gospels will tell us Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. John doesn't tell us that, but what we see in John is that from chapter 7 with the Feast of Tabernacles all the way through to the crucifixion now, he is in Jerusalem and that area. He does not go back up to the area of the Galilee again uh, until after the resurrection. Um, and so, um, so we're, we've now been in and around Jerusalem all of this time. And so Jesus now at the Feast of Hanukkah, which is just a couple months after Tabernacles, is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Um, and, um, oh, there's a coin of Antiochus IV who thought he was... By the way, this coin is fun because he's actually depicting himself to look like Zeus, who was the head of the, the, the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods, so you can see the size of his, of his crazy ego. Um, uh, so uh, this is uh, the Good Shepherd. So this is actually taken, um, taken in around the Judean desert. So, um, and, and I don't have a picture of the temple. We'll see that this afternoon. Um, but J Jesus is there walking around the temple in Colonnade. And people are gathering around him because he's famous and he's an amazing teacher. And people are attracted because he's God, right? They may not understand this, but they want to be around him. Um, unfortunately, though, it's also the religious leadership that wants to be around him because they want to shut him up. They want to kill him because he's upsetting their apple cart. And they are pretty happy with the status quo. And he is upsetting it. And they ask him in verse 24, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Tell if you are the Christ, that's Messiah anointed one. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus' response is, I, I have told you, and you don't believe. Now, how has he told them? Nowhere in this gospel does Jesus look at somebody and say, um, from, to, at this point anyway, and say, yeah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ. And the reason that he doesn't do this is because um, the Jews at this time had a very, um, not an incorrect, but an incomplete 
understanding of what the Messiah was and of who the Messiah was. They were very much, and given their situation, you can probably understand it, they're, they're under Roman authority. They're being oppressed and taxed half to death. Um, they were looking for a Messiah who would be just like David and Solomon, um, a very powerful, strong leader who would go out and kick some Roman hiney. Um, and make Israel, you know, kind of the big kid on the block. What's Jesus come to do, though? His messiahship is way bigger. And again, this is why I think it's so important for us to really know our Old Testament, because um, if they had been reading the fullness of the Old Testament and really taking it in, what they would have known was that the messiah when he came, was going to do way more than just overthrow a temporary worldly nation. Um, the Messiah, by the time of the prophets, especially the later prophets like Isaiah and Zechariah, the, the, um, the Messiah was also going to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 52-53. He was going to be the Messiah of Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days. Um, the Messiah was not just somebody from David's line who was going to be an earthly king. He was coming from God himself and was going to overcome sin and evil, not just a single empire. Um, but, of course, we humans tend to be a little myopic, and so they were very much just looking for somebody to kick the Romans out. Um, and so Jesus wasn't going to play into those expectations. Jesus wanted them to have a bigger understanding, to have really um, a God vision of the breadth and depth of God's saving mercy that he was bringing. And so he would never, he didn't say to them, yes, I am the Messiah. But there were a lot of others at this time who were doing that. Um, and it always ended badly from them, for them because they weren't the Messiah. Jesus is. Um, and so he says, I have told you plainly, but what he has told them, they have to be willing to open their hearts to understand. So by the time we get to chapter 10, we have seen six of Jesus' seven signs in this gospel. If you go to the synoptics, we've seen a whole lot more. Um, as again, John only records some that he's trying to make to highlight some points. Um, Jesus has told them who he is with every miracle. When he heals a man born blind, when he gives uh, a man who was disabled from birth the ability to walk, when he helps someone who is mute speak, when he feeds 5,000 people with just a couple loaves of bread and has 12 baskets left, Every single one of those miracles was a statement about who he was. They just didn't want to see it. Every time Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world, I am the living water, he is telling them exactly who he is. And what is he saying in each one of those things? I am God. Now, at some level, you can't blame the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests for not getting it. Because to get your head around the fact that you might literally be standing face to face, talking to God incarnate, is pretty mind-boggling. And I suspect that if Jesus showed up today and said, I am God, what would probably our first reaction be? Call, call somebody. He's a little crazy. And yet this is the point that Jesus makes here in chapter 7 because he doesn't just say these things. Um, he says in verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So I'm not just telling you I'm God like Antiochus IV did or like a crazy person would. I am showing you I'm God. And I am showing you by doing things that no human can do. Not even the prophets of old could do what I have done. So, 
let the works speak. But he goes on to say, and he kind of slams them here, because he's saying to him, you've seen all these works, and you religious leaders, did we just go off? And you religious leaders, so, oh, no, we got a red light. Got a red light. Yeah. Okay. Stay tuned. So, oh. so he says, I, I am doing all of these miracles, and you religious leaders, better than anybody else, should know what these works point to. For example, he walks on water, right? Who can walk on water? God. Nobody else. He calms storms. Who can do that? Well, only God has power over all of creation. And so he says, let the works speak. But in verse 26, he says, you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now this is, um, this is one of these tough passages um, because we start getting into things like election and predestination, right? And don't we all get squirrely with that in, this, in, our, in our nation? <laughs> um, and yet this is a little bit of what Jesus, you know, these are my sheep and they, are, they already know my voice. And so there's, there's, uh, there's, you know, we're kind of, Jesus is saying, I've got my sheep, but you all won't listen because... You're not part of my sheet. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll keep holding oh. it here if you want to keep talking. No, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. Um, all right. Let's see if we got power here. Maybe. There we go. La, 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 la. You don't want me to sing. We'd all start bleeding from the ears. Um, so... Um, so we get a little bit of that, um, and, but we get, again, remember those three questions that I gave last night and that, that your small groups may lead you through this later, but what is, what is the benefit of following Christ? What is the benefit of being one of his sheep? Eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. Um, so again, I'm the, he's saying that I am the good shepherd, and I've got my people, um, and so, um, so that wonderful news there, again, that stands in contrast to the religious leadership who have not been taking good, sh- good care of the sheep, who have not been taking good care of God's people. Um, and, um, and then he says something really, really radical. I and the Father are one. So Jesus nowhere in this argument says, I am the Messiah. He ups the ante exponentially and says, I and the Father are one. Now, within Judaism, this, uh, this was considered blasphemy. And, of course, the, um, the, the, the punishment for blasphemy was to be taken outside the city walls and stoned. And this is what they seek to do. Um, but Jesus, to kind of get them to finish hearing what he wants to say to them in verse 32, says, I have shown you many good works from the Father, and for which of them are you going to stone me? Well, the Greek there, many good works, is the word kalos, which actually means beautiful. Um, and, and I know why the translators go with good, but the, probably the best translation here is, I have shown you many beautiful works. And think about that for a minute. Think about the miracles that Jesus has done, even just in the Gospel of John. And I encourage you, go back through this Gospel and take a look at the miracles, the signs that Jesus did. And they are beautiful. He feeds hungry people in the wilderness. He gives a blind man sight. Can you imagine? He gives the man at the pool of Bethesda who's literally been outcast and broken all of his life, who's had to spend his whole life as a beggar, um, as somebody that people just walk by, um, who couldn't work, who couldn't participate in life. He has given, he gave him the ability to walk and to become part of society. Those are beautiful works. They are works that speak about the goodness of what God intended for creation before sin broke everything. Look at the beautiful works, and for which of those are you going to stone me? 
What have I done, Jesus says, that is really not of God? In fact, what have I done, Jesus says, that is not of God directly, that only God could do? And this is really important. You know, this wasn't like the man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. This wasn't a guy who'd broken his leg and Jesus said it. This was a guy who had literally been crippled since the day he was born, who has been recreated so that he could be what God had wanted him to be before sin broke everything. For which of these beautiful works are you going to stone me? And so this is, you know, this is really um, the heart of chapter 10 here. Um, that unlike Antiochus, who did no beautiful works, who really couldn't do any works that weren't purely human, Jesus is doing all sorts of beautiful works that only God could do. Therefore, who is Jesus? God. Right. And so he's not blaspheming. Um, And the, the argument goes on. Um, In verse 34, this rather odd verse, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Okay, so that's a a little esoteric argument there. Um, It... The, the you are gods is from Psalm 82, verse 6. Um, and at, at this time in uh, Israel's life, most of the rabbinic teachers at the time understood the, uh, that this was addressed to Israel. And this is how Jesus is using it. So that that verse was addressed to the people of Israel. And that God is telling them in this psalm that they are little g-gods. Now, this isn't some form of idolatry. What, what they're, it's, it's a poetic, basically, it's a poetic way of saying that because you are my children, you are little g-gods. He's not telling them that they're like God. So that's not what that psalm is saying. But, they're, but because they're his children, they have some part in, in, his, in, in his sort of, because he's their father, um, they have some part in that. But Jesus, uh, of course, tells them that I'm saying I'm I'm the son of God. And that's, of course, that that little article there is actually part of the problem here, is that they may be a child of God. He is the son of God. Um, So Jesus, of course, uh, he's very, he's smart. He should be. He's the son of God, right? Um, um, but, But another big connection to Hanukkah here is that he, uh, in verse 36 there, of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world. Remember, Hanukkah is about the feast, uh, when they rededicated the temple after they kicked Antiochus IV out. And on the 25th of Kislev in particular, that was the day that they re-consecrated the altar after it had been contaminated. So Jesus here is basically saying, look, on the 25th of Kislev in 164, humans, under, under the, the auspices of God, but humans reconsecrated the altar, and you worship there. But now something greater than this stone altar has come. Because I am the altar that was consecrated by the Father himself. And this is really important because throughout these feasts, all of these feasts are moving us toward the third Passover. And in the third Passover, of course, we will see that Jesus is the Passover lamb. So he's the ultimate offering. But he's also, in a sense, the altar itself. He's also the great high priest. And what we're seeing in these, in these festivals moving up to this third Passover is that Jesus is gathering all of these ideas about how we get right with God 
and how we communicate and how we're in relationship with God that within Judaism took place primarily in the temple and through the sacrifices. Jesus is gathering all of these ideas and saying, I am the one who fulfills all of them. All of these things find their beginning and their end, their telos, a Greek word, their teleological end in me. And that Greek word telos is a little like the word kairos. So telos is this wonderful Greek word. So I think we need to speak a lot more Greek than we do. It's got, a, and maybe some Hebrew too, because they've got lots of meaning behind them. Um, just as a little aside, I got to see this great speaker about um, about how different cultures communicate. And, um, and she was talking about high and low context cult- cultures. And it has to do with how sort of breaking it down Barney style different cultures are. And so um, America is a very low context culture. So our words mean one thing and we tend to over explain. I know that I do all the time. My husband's like, you already told me, shut up. And um, so, but we're a very low context culture. Uh, Japan is actually the highest context culture in the world. And she was sharing the story about doing, leading a, a, a seminar in Japan. And at the end of it, she asked people, um, uh, does anybody have any questions? And nobody raised their hands. And she was like, oh man, I must have blown it. And her, uh, her Japanese host actually said, hold on just a second. And he stood up and said, does anyone have any questions for our guest speaker today? And still no hands went up, but he just pointed at a woman and said, yes, what is your question? And she asked a really insightful question. And so this woman that was talking said after, after she was done, she went up to her host and said, well, how did you know she had a question? And he said, her eyes were bright. And so, um, and so this concept of high context cultures, basically he explained that she was looking at him and you could kind of read on her face that she had a question. And, um, and that's a very high context culture. And actually in Japan, she said, they have this concept of reading the air. That somebody may say one small thing, but they've actually said a ton. You have to know how to read the air and have to know how to get into the depth of what their words mean. And this is Hebrew and Greek are a lot like that. English is very low context, which is why we need more Hebrew and Greek in our language. But, um, so, but back to telos. So telos, teleological, for any of you that had to sit through a philosophy class in school. But teleology is basically meaning that we reach that sort of end, the purpose for which something was created. And so, um, so Jesus is ba- ba- gathering all of these feasts, all of the Old Testament into himself. And he is saying, essentially, I am the one, I am the word through whom all things were created. So I set it all in motion. I am its alpha and I am its omega. I am the end for which all of this was created. And this is what he's doing here. So when he talks about being consecrated by the Father, he is saying... I am the perfect altar. Um, What this stone altar symbolizes, I am the perfect example of that. I am the end of all of the worship that you do on the altar. And so um, this wonderful concept, and that he has come from the Father himself. So this was not just, and and, um, back in in chapter 1, um, John, uh, in, in, with the prologue of John's gospel, uh, remember that John says, you know, and uh, the, the law came, was given by Moses, was given by, but grace and truth came from Jesus. Now, that's important. Those two verbs there are really crucial to understanding all of what's going on in John's gospel. Um, it has to do basically with function and degree. So Moses is a functionary. He is given a job by God that he fulfills, and he does it well. Um, But he gave the law, which God had given to him. Jesus, however, is the word. So just by degrees there, 
he's so removed from Moses as to be unimaginably. The gap between Moses and Jesus is literally the ultimate gap between divine and human. But the verb for came through is a Greek word, egenito, which means to basically give birth to or to create. And it is the way that the Septuagint, which was the um, first Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures um, done in Alexandria, Egypt, um, the, the, and, this was, and actually the Septuagint was the Bible that Jesus would have been using, um, at, that, that agenito was the way they translated Genesis 1. When God creates the world, it's agenito. Um, and so, uh, so basically everything came to be through Jesus, uh, which of course is what Paul tells us. Um, and so this is what John, um, what Jesus is telling us here in John chapter 10. <laughs> I, I'm the one who started it all, and it all finds its end in me. I am the Alpha and the Omega. So I am greater than you can even imagine. And basically, your real Hanukkah is standing here. So this festival is great, but if you really want to celebrate Hanukkah, it's me. <laughs> um, and so, um, and so this, is the, this is part of the wonder of, of sort of digging into this to, to, to kind of come to, to grips with all of this. Um, and uh, verse... Um, 37, you know, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, he says, look, you don't have to listen to a word I am telling you if you don't want. But take a look at what I have done and let those works speak for themselves. And he wants them to believe, but they don't, because the very next verse says, um, and, uh, and again they sought to arrest him. And that's the great sadness of it. And, and I think it's still the sadness today um, when people just are so closed off to God. Um, and, you know, for, for me, the great work is, is the resurrection. For you, it might be something different. Um, but um, for me, kind of one of the turning, this is just a little bit of my, I guess, sacred story. But um, when I went away to college, um, I, I got smarter than God. And, uh, and I know sometimes you parents with kids in college, you really worry about this. And I know a lot of kids do tend to fall away in college. Um, but, you know, but I, I was definitely smarter than God. Um, part of it, I'll be honest with you. So I moved back from England, and England is not a very touchy-feely culture, right? So this is how the peace went in my church that I grew up in in England. And the peace of the Lord be always with you, and also with you. And we would all nod at the vicar, and that was it, okay? And so then I moved back to the States, and I, I go to school in Colorado, and I, I find an Episcopal church, um, for my, my first Sunday there, and I go, and it comes to the peace, and total strangers start hugging me. <laughs> I was like, are, are you all perverts or something? What is going on here? Leave me alone. Stop touching me. And, um, um, and so I was so creeped out, I didn't go back. And then, of course, I got smarter than God, which was a dreadful mistake. But um, when I was in the Marine Corps, early in the Marine Corps, because um, there are no atheists in foxholes, um, I uh, started going back to church, but I was really struggling. I was kind of sort of a Unitarian, I guess. I'd kind of become a Unitarian at that point. And I could get God. Like, I got God, right? A creator, I could get that. But I really struggled with Jesus. And, and I was very much influenced by, I think, kind of the culture that it was just Jesus is just a nice teacher. Um, and so I was really struggling with that until, um, until one Sunday. And, and my poor husband, he had to listen to all of this going on in me all the time. Like every time we were in the car, I'm like, but what do you think about it? And, he's like, and he finally cracked and he said, I am not talking about this with you anymore. Go to church. <laughs> and so, <laughs> ask a priest. I don't care. Um, just leave me alone. And so, um, so I started going to church. And I remember the Easter Sunday when the priest got up. And he basically just said, this is the resurrection, and this is why we can trust it. Um, because the people that proclaimed it, had they gained nothing from proclaiming it. Um, 
And he, he went through a lot of the sort of modern arguments against the real physical resurrection, and he just told me, it was like he was just talking to me, but he just explained why we can trust the resurrection. And, you know, and like Holly was saying, you know, it was kind of like God hugged me. I, I had like a really almost physical encounter with God that day. Um, and it completely changed my life. And thank you, God. Um, but that for me is the pivotal work that Jesus did, the, the ultimate kalos, beautiful work that Jesus did. Um, but that also for me, I... You know, I work backwards, so that for me, the resurrection is true. Therefore, I can trust everything else. And so, so the, these beautiful works, Jesus says, look, believe them. And I know for us, you know, we didn't get to witness the man born blind regain his sight. So can we trust this? Yes, I think we can because I absolutely believe and am willing to die for it that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day never to die again. And if that is true, then I know I have a God and a Savior who can give a man blind from birth his sight. I know I have a God and a Savior who can walk on water and calm the storms. I know I have a God and a Savior who can make the lame leap and the mute speak. Even if we can't believe what he says, believe in the works. And they are works that only God can do. And so who is this Savior? God. Who is Jesus? God. And this is what John chapter 10 is telling us. And it is based completely in how he fulfills Everything that he, the Old Testament talked about, from Genesis 1 all the way to the last verse of Malachi. This is who Jesus is. And Hanukkah, even though it wasn't one of the Levitical feasts, it was a huge part of the life of Israel. And Jesus fulfilled that too. Um, and so this is, this is John 10, and yet people did not believe. And again, remember I said last night that one of the big sort of, you know, kind of meta-narratives of John's gospel is its connection to the Exodus. Remember in the Exodus, who was the big bad guy? Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh wouldn't. Pharaoh, because Pharaoh hardened his heart, even though he was seeing the mighty works that God was doing. And so in the end, God said to Pharaoh, fine, you want a hard heart? You have one forever. It's like my mom used to tell me, you know, if I made faces, my face would stick that way. <laughs> it's kind of what happened to Pharaoh. Um, so, um, so um, and this is the sad thing with the religious leadership, is that they, um, they choose to harden their hearts. Um, but, uh, verse 39, um, I forgot my reading glasses, long arms. Um, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And the reason that is, is because his kairos hour had not come. Um, we've got to wait for the Passover for that. Um, and we see in verse 40 that he goes away across the Jordan. Um, so, um, he, uh, and he stays there for a time. On until uh, until just before the Passover, which is the opening of chapter 11, which is shortly before Passover, and it is the seventh sign in John's Gospel. It is the most amazing because what does Jesus do in chapter 11? He raises Lazarus from the dead, and I'm not going to talk about this this afternoon, so I've got a few minutes here. But one of the Jewish beliefs um, at this time was that your body hovered over, or your spirit hovered over your body for three days. After that, it was gone. So there was a belief that, that you might be able to bring somebody back from the dead. And this goes back to like Elijah and Elisha's miracles of, of raising folks who were re, like, had been dead like 30 minutes. Um, and, but they believed that after that, there was no way possible for life to return. And Lazarus had been in the grave. And, and I love the, the King James of this. It says, when, yeah, but Lord, he stinketh. 
In other words, he's been dead long enough that he's started to rot. And yet Jesus raises him from the dead. He is literally bringing the dead back to life. And who can do that? God can. Um, so who is, who is Jesus? And is that not a beautiful work? Is that not a beautiful work? Um, so, um, so that is chapter 10. I actually have four minutes for questions. <laughs> Are there any questions? <laughs> I can't. <laughs> All right. Well, oh, yes, Carrie. In the third, when you say the third Passover, is that, are you saying that's the second coming? What what so in John's Gospel, there are three Passovers, and we'll talk about those more this afternoon. So there's the one in, uh, uh, at, the, at the very beginning of John's Gospel with the cleansing of the temple. Um, there's the one that uh, is, right, uh, is at the feeding of the 5,000 time. And then there is the third Passover, which is the crucifixion. Um, so those are the three Passovers in John's Gospel. Oh, yes? Uh-huh. Beating the willows? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, not in the Holy of Holies, but it was the main altar in the area of the priests. Yeah, nobody could go into the Holy of Holies. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's, that's not actually an altar. Within the Holy of Holies, there's the table uh, for, uh, for, for um, yeah, and then, um, thank you, and then there's the, the, the place where the Ark of the Covenant sat, but there's not an altar in there. But yeah, you're right, they wouldn't, wouldn't have been allowed to go in there. So, yeah. Other questions? All right, so 